At the top of the ridgeline, Max stood on a pointed rock looking into the next valley, while Xavier and I collapsed onto the ground and caught our breath. Storm clouds are heading this way. We'll get wet, but it should slow that fire, Max said. Xavier got to his feet and pulled me up. We joined Max on the ridgeline and immediately felt the first drops of rain. All of a sudden, I had a rush of optimism. I think we're going to make it, I said, hopefully. Xavier pointed down toward a clearing in the forest that ran out straight through the lush valley that had not yet been touched by the raging fire on the other side of the mountain. That's an access road. We should head for it and see if we can make up some time. Lead on, Max said. We made our way off the ridgeline and down the forested mountainside. We were making pretty good time for several minutes until we froze at the sound of the low rumble of diesel engines. How close they were, I couldn't say, but the fact that they were close enough for us to hear them was not good. Not good, I said. Let's make it to the access road and run for it, Xavier said. Max, surrounded by holographic icons, had the gloves on and was scrolling through communications on the platform, but didn't seem to have found anything. She pulled them off and shook her head. We continued our descent. Those trucks could mean a lot of things, Max said. I have a feeling we'll know soon enough, I said darkly. When we make it to the access road, run, Xavier said, his face deadly serious. Once the forest flattened out, we had to struggle through underbrush in a massive bramble patch. If you've never been stuck in a bramble patch, imagine your clothes are made of the soft loops of Velcro, and when you, then you walk into the dense collection of hooks, and all of a sudden, you're stuck in a Velcro trap from head to toe. It's frightening because just when you get out of one, you step into another one, and once you realize where you are, it's too late to turn around. And there was no way we're turning around, because from somewhere behind us, we heard the first shriek, then another, then it was almost non-stop shrieking that gave way only to loud and guttural grunts. Just then I looked around and realized I had no idea where Xavier was. I looked over at Max, who was fighting to free her arms from the brambles while still searching through the database. Shut them down, Max, I hissed. She didn't say anything, and I stopped talking because she looked desperate, flicking through lines of code, which was something I had never seen her do. They all knew that if they had trucked in packs of change to hunt us, we were all dead, and it wasn't just because we were trapped in the brambles. Even if we get loose, we could never outrun them. The creatures would always catch us. Max turned to me and said, They're not like the soldiers. They can't be shut down. Just then I looked over at Xavier, who, survival knife in hand, was making his way toward us, slashing and cutting branches as he came. I cleared a trail. Follow me, he whispered. When we finally made it to the dirt access road, we ran, panicked and moving as fast as we could. We were desperate to put some distance between us and the vicious pack of the change. Getting ever closer, judging by the sounds of their shrieks and grunts. Pack must have sent out scouts or forerunners because one emerged from the forest and stood on the road about 30 feet in front of us, bent over and leering at us, as if it wanted to get a good look at us and was enjoying it. Then it shrieked and charged. Xavier had his survival knife ready, holding it out in front of him in the defensive position. I stepped up, standing shoulder to shoulder with Xavier, but he shoved me back just as two more of the chains, looking pissed, stepped onto the road and ran at us. It was then I knew we were going to die. From somewhere in the forest, three shots were fired in quick succession, one for each of the chains running at us on the road. The shots dropped them on the road where they lay motionless. As we turned around looking for the shooter, a helmeted figure clad lit entirely in nickel-plated body armor stepped from the tree line. Follow me, the figure said, its voice more machine than human. Max and Xavier shared a look before falling in behind the metallic figure, who was shining at a fast clip on the dirt road. I was the last in the line as I still looked behind me. Sure, one of those things would jump out and grab me. But up ahead, I became more interested in what I was seeing in the distance. Something big shimmered in the half-light of the forest, as if putting forth its own light. Whatever it was, it didn't belong to the forest. It drew closer, its cylindrical shape 
as long as the school boss came into view. As far as I could tell, it looked like an advanced spy plan. But as my speculation was based solely on what I'd seen in movies and one trip to the Air and Space Museum, I figured I didn't know for sure. A hiss preceded the opening of a hatch, which the metallic figure stepped through and disappeared inside. Shrieks and grunts coming from somewhere behind us, settling any question about whether or not to step through the hatch. Max, Xavier, and I practically got stuck as we all tried to get inside that at the same time. Once inside, Max did the most unexpected thing. She hugged the metallic figure and it hugged her back. It's really strange how it held Max's face between its hands and stared at her from the black, lifeless eyes of the helmet. And Max seemed cool with it. Behind us, the hatch hissed as it shields shut. Muffled shrieks from outside told me the chains were close. But when they began to pound on the hatch, rocking us back and forth as they shrieked, I feared no one could never stop so many of them surrounding us, bent only on our destruction. Find a seat and secure your safety harness, the metallic figure now seated in the pilot's chair commanded. Whoever or whatever was about to be our pilot was quickly making preparations for takeoff. That was clear. Suddenly, I had the sensation we were moving, as if we were tipping backward, reminding me of a roller coaster I had ridden at Hershey Park that slowly climbed impossibly straight up at a 90 degree angle for its first drop. We're tipping. Does no one else realize the plane is tipping? I asked. We're not in a plane, Yuli, as Zaver said calmly. Well, we're not in a damn submarine, I replied, holding tight to the straps of my safety harness. Max reached over and patted my arm. By this time, I could see from the cockpit window that we were no longer looking at the trees but facing the sky. A jet of vapor shot up, probably from the engines, I thought. We all looked skyward as the metallic figure in front of us swiped and touched screens of the control panel surrounding the pilot seat. Something about the movements reminded me of Max. Prepare for liftoff, the metallic figure said. Liftoff? What's that supposed to mean? I said, no longer trying to hide my desperation. Just breathe, Zaver told me. Tell me what's happening, I demanded. We're taking off, Yuli, Max said. I get that, but where to? 250 miles straight up, the metallic figure replied. Oh, I said. That kind of made sense to me. I'd flown to Florida once, and it wasn't a very long trip. It might have only been a few hundred miles, so that made me feel better. But then the engine ignited, and we felt the forest heading straight up, surrounded by the overpowering, thunderous noise of jet propulsion. Not leveling off, not flying over, over the earth, but flying way from the earth. Mirrors popped as I looked over at Xavier, who was grinning broadly and looking happier than I'd ever seen him. In a few moments, the noise level began to diminish, and after a couple of minutes, my ears adjusted. It was almost like the sound of highway noise while traveling on the interstate. For a time, no one said a word, but I could tell Xavier was dying to say something. I suppose once you developed an internal fuel source, it made space flight easily attainable, he said. Never looking away from the instrument panel, the pilot unfastened his helmet and removed it, reeling a brown-haired guy of about 40. We escape Earth's gravity with relative ease without all that extra weight for fuel and stage rockets to achieve low Earth orbit, he said. You should know we just passed the Kármán line. Zara tried to fist bump me. We're officially in space, baby, he yelled. Wait, 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 I blurted. You said we were flying 250 miles. That's like going to Pittsburgh. We're going 250 miles straight up into space, Julie, Max said matter-of-factly. I tried processing it. And how are you, darling, the man asked. Definitely been... I began, but Zayra elbowed me hard on the ribs. Much better now. How are you, Dad? Max said. Wait, what? I thought. But I must have looked like I was about to speak, so Zayra elbowed me again. I glared at him. Never better now that you're here, the man said. Max turned and looked at Zayra and me. So this is my dad, Arden Ray. Dad, these are my friends, Xavier and Yuli. Can we trust them? Arden asked. They saved my life, Max replied. That's good enough for me, Arden said. Welcome aboard. 
So, why space? Xavier asked. I tried elbowing his ribs this time. He blocked it with his arm. It's the only place we're safe, Arden said. So that's why she's looking for you. She wants the Earth and space, Max laughed. Bingo. So, tell me about your mother, Arden said. Beautiful and terrifying as ever, Max said. That's her, Queen Bee, Arden said. Max held up the gloves. I'm afraid she's not happy with me. Wide-eyed, Arden looked from the gloves to Max. Well done, Maxine. Once we rendezvous at the Astro Station, I'd like to see just what you can do with them. It's pretty dope, I said. She saved our butts a couple of times already. All of a sudden, Max's face grew pale and serious. Dad, what Mom has done, it's... I'm so sorry you had to see it, kiddo, Arden said. There was awkward silence for a long moment before Max's face brightened. I have a few ideas about how to stop her, she said. Arden smiled. I was hoping you'd say that. I'm beginning to think you're the only one who can stop her. But you're so smart, Dad. All this, I mean, we're in a space, spacecraft you designed, Max said. Arden laughed and opened his arms wide as he looked around the cockpit. Engineering, future tech and gadgets are, is one thing. But your mom thinks on a much grander scale than I ever could. There was more silence until Max spoke up. You got us into space, Dad. We're preparing to rendezvous with an astro station. That's more than impressive. Arden smiled, looking like he had something to say, but thought better of it. And when we arrive, we can all unfasten our harnesses and have some fun in zero gravity, Arden said, staring at me as I fiddled with the fastener of my harness. Truth was, I just was thinking of unhooking so I could float around. I looked over at Xavier, who was smiling at me in a funny way. Just then, something hit my head. It was the baseball bat key ring from the old Oldsmobile, the car we had first driven around him. Don't say I never gave you anything, Xavier laughed. Keys to a 72 Oldsmobile isn't much of a gift up here, I told him, suddenly realizing I was actually enjoying space travel. Things are a little different in space, Odysseus, Xavier agreed. Absolutely, I said. But then I thought about the gauntlet the three of us had passed through in just a few days. We had fought for our own lives, yet we had also been willing to put our own lives at risk to help each other, all the while growing closer to each other. Even after all the terror and near-death experiences, I found it strange how much I totally enjoyed being with my friends. And I'd do whatever I could do to help them survive, be the best people they could be. If this wasn't true friendship, I didn't know what it was. It was a bond I had never known. I guess it all boiled down to the fact that although I still badly miss my mother and Finn McCool, I believe with all my heart that Max, Xavier, and I would figure somehow how to find them and make things right in the world. And if we didn't, we could stick together and be a force for good, come what may. And this is where my journal ends, for now. End of book one.